Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, aspirationally, boys and girls. Uh, welcome to the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure. On the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. Uh, together, we are bald. No, together, we are the Personal Wealth Coach and, and bald. I'm glad you got that straight. Yes, we have to establish, this is full disclosure, you guys need to have uh, total knowledge of the fact that there are two bald men with beards talking to you at the moment. This podcast is called The Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything, neither, neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is, and this tape will destruct after it's listened to. You the dated yourself. This tape will destruct. Your podcast tape is about to self-destruct. That's why you can't find the tape in it anymore. <laughs> it already has self-destructed because it's too old. Right. Uh, being listened to on a TWA airplane on a company from a TWA doesn't exist anymore either. And uh, the information that we do present in this podcast, we get from sources we think are very reliable, but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else. We just do the best we can. The information that we're providing during this podcast is not considered investment advice. This information is educational because investment advice means that we know exactly who's listening and we can custom tailor all of our advice to them. So prepare to be educated. Um, we got a question over the break that's a fantastic one. The, the question is about the LIBOR. Um, and I, I think it's fascinating. Most people had no idea what the LIBOR was until now. The LIBOR is the Lo London Interbank Offered Rate. Well, what does that have to do? Why are we talking about that? Um, when you get a loan from almost anyone for almost anything. Traditionally, and this is one of those things that is kind of like the first questions we got last hour about the Bretton's, Bretton Woods agreement, um, was that we had a international standard that was set up to say, this is what all loans need to be pegged to, the LIBOR. Because the British, the UK, they're really good at, at working with their currency, and they've been doing it a long time. A, a fellow you may have heard of helped them develop the way they do it. His name was Newton, uh, and it was in the process of figuring out how to do calculus and determining what to call gravity and things like that, that he came up with a, a pretty good exchange rate. Uh, he was the exchequer of the mint and help develop the Bank of England as it is today. Uh, so they've done a really, really good job, except that about five years ago, there was a massive scandal, and a group of companies and people, bad actors in those companies, um, conspired to alter the London Interbank lending rate, the LIBOR. Uh, and so the entire world looked at that and said, hey, that wasn't hard to do. People could have been doing this for a long time and we didn't know about it. Uh, they could be doing it again. So we need a different standard. We need to do something different. And what that is, is we're not going to have an international standard anymore. It's uh, In the United States, there's a rate that 
is being suggested to banks but is not mandatory called the SOFR, the, the uh, S-O-F-R. And uh, the S-O-F-R, for, for those of you who are wondering, is the secured overnight, overnight financing rate. And we were still talking at this time last year, at the beginning of 2020, pre-pandemic, about the irregularities that had been going on over the past year in the software. Um, Big spikes on single days because transactions were being done in a different way and the Federal Reserve had to step in and stabilize it. Expect to see some more of that for a while, some more volatility in there. The, The Federal Reserve is now kind of giving it an IV drip to make sure it stays exactly where it needs to be. It needs to be very stable. And before, it was not as regulated and it was not stable. It had some fluctuations. In order to be used as the benchmark for the United States' loans, both as a country, as a government, and for the corporations and the humans involved in this, it needs to be stable. So that's what's replacing it. They've got till December 31st of the end of this year, 2021, to replace the LIBOR with something. You may have, if you've got a brokerage account, you may have received something, especially if you have a margin or a line of credit, uh, something along those lines from whatever institution you're using saying, hey, we're now going to peg you to fill in the blank. Um, And it may not be the secured overnight finance rate. There is a lot of room for negotiation on this. This is a really important thing. If you have a line of credit, if you have a margin account, uh, if you have borrowed money in the market somewhere, there is a lot of room for negotiation from one custodian to the next. What is a custodian? Wells Fargo, uh, J.P. Morgan, Um, Pershing, there's a lot of big, big, big companies that are considered custodians of your assets when you put them there. And there is a spread in these interest rates for what they're offering on lines of credit and so on that is huge. It is a massive difference. If you're a, a good client for one of those institutions and they say this is what your new rate will be, Call another institution and say, what would you charge me? And then go back to your first institution and say, this other place wants to give me this. And you'll find something interesting. They'll probably change the rate. So what used to be a very negotiation-free process has now become a haggle. Get, get ready for it. Expect it. Hopefully that will go away. At some point in the future, there will be a standard. But right now you can wind up making a tremendously good deal if you realize that there's haggling available here where there wasn't before. So I think I answered that fairly well. Do you have anything to add to the subject? Well, the SOFR is still being, and you mentioned this, but it's still being refined. It's supposedly, it supposedly is an automatic calculation based on the collateralized, the, the rate of interest being paid on collateral at U.S. banks that are reporting to the Federal Reserve. He's not working quite that way right now, and there's a really good reason for that. Uh, although the switchover has got to occur this year, it smoothed out quite a lot. Last year, it bounced around some. One of the big reasons for that is everything bounced around a lot last year, is a lot of money flooded into the dollar to 
try to find someplace that's safe to have the money. And the Federal Reserve was trying to keep the dollar from fluctuating too much and was trying to maintain low interest rates. And there were a lot of levers being pulled at the on the monetary end of things and the interest rate end of things. And we never pulled those levers exactly the same way before, so we saw some unusual things going on. I think it'll stabilize. Uh, if nothing else, I'm 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 prejudiced. Uh, the the official Federal Reserve Bank of New York says that so far the secured overnight fig, uh, secured overnight financing, financing yeah. is calculated as a volume weighted meeting of transaction level tri-party repo data collected from the Bank of New York Mellon. I have a lot of faith in the Bank of New York Mellon. It's been around a long time. Issued the first money that the United States used and so far has worked out pretty well. And I have a lot of faith that they'll get this thing worked out because it's very important. Yeah, just as a side note, that's a bank that was established by Alexander Hamilton. Yes, nice uh, guy. Yeah, so when we talk about uh, the big banks in in the UK and who they were established by, we've got some, you know, Bank of New York Mellon, there's JP Morgan, those are those are both institutions that were founded by people who had their balance sheets really, really well taken care of, and they still require that. Now, Wells Fargo was there for a long time too, but they've been pretty scandal ridden for a while. And specifically, if you have a Wells Fargo account, they are the most negotiable when it comes to what your line of credit are that I have seen so far. Uh, if you're not getting any budging room on them, they're charging, from what I can see, the most out of a series of the big institutions. It's because they're in trouble. I don't know what the trouble is, but if they're insisting on a rate that's much higher than everybody else, that's why. Uh, just just be aware, and they may think that you're not going to leave if you've got a lot of money with them and they want to charge you more, and they think, well, you're stuck. You've got golden handcuffs. This is what negotiation's about. If you say, fine, I'm going to leave, then they may change your rate. John asked about the business impacts of that change over to the library, and there really won't be a lot. It's just that whatever rate is used, and it's, that's another thing about the United States at this point that I think people are not appreciating too much. The London interbank lending rate, offer rate, the offer rate at the, at, at, in, was based in London. Because London was the financial capital of the world. The city, as it's called, the downtown part of London, was financial, very much like uh, southern New York City. The southern end of New York City is mostly financial. And it was the center It was the center of gravity of world financial transactions. But a couple of things have happened to change that. One is the scandal around the LIBOR, where bankers were contacting each other and fixing the rate, setting it higher than it needed to be so they can make more money. Um, the other thing is Brexit, uh, the treaty that was instituted to cement Brexit in place where they settled on how many fish people could catch and things of that and what to do with Northern Ireland and the border between Northern Ireland and regular Ireland. They got the big things out of the way, but what was not agreed on was services. In other words, it used to be that if you were in London, if you're in Great Britain or United Kingdom, you could trade stocks in Europe as if you were in Europe. You can't do that anymore. There is a difference there. It's not a big restriction, but it's there. And it means that Great Britain, as it's traditionally known, is no longer the center, going to be the center of gravity for financial transactions around the world. That's been coming a long time. And it was established when the British Empire was still in place, when 
the pound was the well, literally the gold standard, only it was silver standard for the world. The dollar is the standard for the world, and the setting of the international rates for loans has basically the center of gravity has moved to New York, uh, which is an indication that we're still, we, the dollar is still king in many, many ways. Yeah, and just as a, this is an important note to bring into this. We've, we've had questions about Bretton Woods and the gold standard, and now about these these different financing rates. I said last hour what the 10 top gold producing countries were, China being first, then Australia, then the United States, then Russia. Uh, United States is number three on the production list. On the consumption list, that means who is buying it. China is so far ahead of everybody else as on this I mean, in, the only place that's anywhere close is India. China consumes roughly 984 metric tons of gold a year. That's nearly a thousand. They produce 355. So they're a net importer of gold. We produce 237 metric tons, but we only consume about 193. Our portion of the market on buying gold. Go ahead. We. 193 tons of gold? Yeah, it's consumed. That's stupid economic speech, but really what it means is we buy it. Uh, hopefully we're not consuming it. But that is that is uh, economic speech when it comes to commodities is consumption of commodities, even if we oh. don't. Uh, and that's silly, silly, sorry, and I'm glad you, you brought it up because... I, I just thought it was interesting. I haven't eaten my fair share of gold if we're eating, yeah. that, many, if we're eating that many tons of gold every year. I need to get out and start finding some more gold to eat. Vitamins and minerals, vitamins and minerals. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Man, these vitamins and minerals sure are expensive. Are they made out of gold? Yep. Okay, so China consumes about 1,000 metric tons a year. India consumes about 850 metric tons a year, while we're consuming about 193. That's less than we produce. We're a net exporter of gold. And the amount that we consume is about 20% of what China consumes. And it's, and it's about um, 25% of what India consumes. Between the two of them, if you add them up, we are in the 10% consumption out of three countries. They over-consume this stuff so much. Anybody that thinks that the dollar is a hedge against gold or vice versa needs to look at this again because that may have been true 15 years ago. It may have been true 10 years ago. India has expanded its economy as has China. They now consume so much more gold than us that there's, it's not really a, a conversation about it being linked or as a hedge to the dollar anymore uh, by anybody that's, that's looking at today's numbers. And that's, that is an important, very important factor because a lot of people still look at this the way they grew up. However long ago that was, the United States was the number one consumer and producer of gold in the world. We had a great deal of control over the supply and the demand. We no longer do. And that is not something that I think is a big deal because it's a commodity. If you can get it cheaply and sell it more expensively, it's profitable. That's good. What is the use of gold beyond that? And as a means of storing wealth, it makes sense until you realize it's not 
pegged to our currency anymore. It's pegged much more to the rupee and to the yuan than it is to the dollar. And it's a hard thing for a lot of people to, to, to fix into their mind. Gold is at about $1,900 an ounce right now. If you adjust for inflation, that is slightly higher than it was in 1982. By slightly higher, I mean about 5% higher. You would have had to wait almost 40 years, 38 years, to get to a point where you made a slight profit in gold if you had bought at the last peak. We are at a high point now. If it's a peak, it, it may be one that lasts another 38 years. Uh, it may... It, Gold itself is getting easier to discover, easier to refine because our technology is increasing. We're getting better at figuring out where it is, which long term means a greater supply and the demand is overseas. What I'm saying here is there is a lot of institutional knowledge about what gold is and what niche it provides in the marketplace that is no longer correct. It was correct for a long time, and then it stopped being correct in the 1970s. And people have still latched onto it and said, hey, it's still worth it. Just be aware the reason why the gold prices are as high as they are is because there's a lot of Chinese and Indian purchases of gold. It has a lot less to do with our money than it does to do with their money. There it is. I've, I think I've kicked that one enough times while it was down. So I'll hand it I off have, to you now. You got another question from Tom. Um, he was. Uh, he said the Senate rates in Georgia affect. What's the effect on the U.S. economy? So the first thing you have to understand is there are effectively fifty seats held in the Senate right now by the Republicans, based on the most recent elections. Yeah. The Democrats hold forty-six seats officially, but they have two independents: uh, Bernie Sanders of uh, wherever he's from. And Angus King of Vermont and Angus King of Maine, who are independents, but they caucus with the Democrats and they generally vote with the Democrats. So they're only independent because they fall off the left end of the spectrum beyond where the Democrats usually stop. And so the Democrats effectively have 48 votes in a in a typical bill and the Republicans have 50. Now, if both of the Republicans in uh, in Georgia lose their races and the Democrats win, it'll be a 50-50 in the Senate. And that because the in a tie, which there will be a lot of, because party line votes are pretty standard right now, the vice president casts the deciding vote and presuming that's Kamala, is that correct? Kamala. 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 Like, just think of a comma and then add a law at the end of it. Kamala Harris, Harris is the vice president and she would vote with the Democrats. Also, the majority leader then would be a Democrat and who would determine what bills actually come on the floor and how nominations go. It's, it's a big difference politically, whether it'd be a big difference financially or economically. I don't know. Um, that's because it takes anything major that goes through the Senate actually takes 60 votes to pass. So a 50 split. That's yeah. a bit, not such a big thing. On the other hand, if the Republicans have 51 or 52 votes, they elect the majority leader, and that would be Mitch McConnell again, almost certainly. And he can basically say, no, this bill simply will never be voted on. I don't like it. I don't care how many votes there are on the floor. It's simply never going to come up for a vote. So that's the big issue. What does it have to do for the economy? 
it depends on the legislation. Um, we've had a, a, both times in the last decade and a half that we've had a situation where one party controlled the White House and both houses of Congress. We have had legislation passed with zero votes from the opposing side. The first time that happened was the uh, the we'll call it Obamacare, but it was it, it is not the Obama. It's a good enough term for it. Uh, it's the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act, but we'll just call it what most people call it. Both Democrats and Republicans are calling it Obamacare now, so it's Obamacare. Okay, that was passed with zero votes from the Republicans in both the House and the Senate. And it had a big target from the Republicans. It leads, it led, and is still the center of a great deal of upset and anger. Well, what's the other one? I said both times. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed without a single Democrat vote. That permanently lowered the corporate tax rate and temporarily lowered the personal tax rate. Well, I haven't heard from Joe Biden or from Nancy Pelosi any act, any statement of we must repeal that act, which was the big scare over Obamacare is the Republicans wanted to repeal that act. Um, the Democrats haven't said that, but they have said that they want to raise taxes. So one of the dangers of having total control of all of the non-judicial parts of government in the hands of one party is that you do not get a good debate on what comes through. Basically, only 50% of the population has to support it, and only 50% of the 50% really have to support it, as long as they all vote as a block. It means that 25% of the country gets to determine what the rest of the country does. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was, I think, needed for corporate tax rates. But the fact that it was passed the way it was means that long term, the Democrats are going to continue to have a target on that to say we need to raise taxes on corporations. The best longest term acts that, that stay around the longest are bipartisan events. So we're talking about one law per situation here. But these are laws that have very long-term effects on the economy. The effect from the Affordable Care Act on the economy, I know this is going to be difficult for a lot of people, had a positive for a short term, a major positive, in that uh, insurance rates dropped for about five years following the, the Affordable Care Act. They started back up because... Pieces of the Affordable Care Act were meant to be changed. They were meant to be debated upon. They were meant to be um, amorphous so that they could be fitted, custom fitted to where the country was at any given time. But because no Republicans voted for it, no Republicans felt good about changing that law to make it better because they thought the whole thing was bad. That's the biggest danger is that you pass a permanent law that gets neglected, and then you just have massive confusion where it's not truly defined what is what. 
And that's the danger to the economy. It's a zombie law. A zombie law. And the danger to uh, in having both Republicans lose the race in Georgia is that we'll have zombie laws of some kind. Uh, well, I would really love to see this is this is me. I'm not a Republican and I'm not a Democrat. I would love to see the Republicans li- uh, win one seat in Georgia. They would still have a majority, but it would make them reluctant to overuse the bludgeoning power of the majority position because it's so small. It would mean that they would be in some ways forced to talk to the Democrats. And the Democrats in the House would be forced to talk to the Republicans because you can't get something passed through the House and then not the Senate forever. And we've had a lot of that. So that's the big danger to the economy. I would love to see a split in, in power so that we would have Republicans in Congress and a Democrat in the White House or vice versa. If we can't have that, then I'm okay with one House being Republican and one House being Democrat, the Senate being Republican, the, the House being Democrat. The, the reality is that it's all up in the air and there's really no good way to predict which zombie law could be passed. It could be no zombie laws get passed. That would be nice, but that's putting a little extra faith in Congress. I don't have a lot of faith in Congress, whether Democrat or Republican. And I know that makes me a weirdo because so many people are, are whole hog for a party. I would rather have a functional system than have a system caught up in acrimonious statements that really have no bearing on what's going on. The fact that that politics gets in the way over funding for coronavirus uh, and the Democrats look like the good guys right now, but they're really not. I mean, the, the whole thing about. Yeah, we'll vote on a $2,000 stimulus check. They know that that's not going to go, and they're just using it to wave the flag over in Georgia and say, look, they're being so stingy. They're not saying, oh, we'll agree with the Republican president. They say the Republicans are never going to agree to this. Let's jump on it and take advantage of them. That's not good debate. <laughs> that is, <laughs> this is how, how, how many times can we stab each other in the back? Well, this is something that happens about once every 100 years. Um, I went back and was doing research about the same time period 100 years ago and found out the Congress was just as divided, maybe more divided than they are today. Right. We're not having fistfights on the on the floor of the House right now, which has happened in the past. The extremism in the United States, both left and right, was far, far greater 100 years ago than it is today. And we literally were burning down parts of towns over it. Uh, it makes everything that we saw in the recent riots or demonstrations and burnt in various cities uh, over the Black Lives Matter issue, look very, very mild. Uh, a lot of things were going on 100 years ago that, uh, that are shocking if you read them. Among other things, the, the flu, the, the epidemic of flu that went across the United States in 2018 and 2019, by the way, it hung around for the next two years. It just didn't get reported on. It's amazing how little reporting there was on what was arguably the worst pandemic in the history of the United States. But there's just no significant reporting on it. And I think a piece of it, a piece of the ignoring of it by the federal government and ignoring of it by the news media was that there were so many pandemics. We had cholera, we had diphtheria, we had polio, we had so many things going around. That Smallpox. The, the 19th flu was just another epidemic that was sweeping across the country. And we didn't. it didn't happen as fast 
or as intensely as this one is happening because they simply didn't have people traveling around as fast or as much as we're used to. We weren't flying on a regular basis. In fact, when somebody did fly, it made big news. Oh, hey, they flew across the Atlantic and they didn't die. Woohoo! And that was a time after the, after the 1918 flu. So the point is that things are better than they were 100 years ago. We tend to run in cycles that are about 100 years, plus or minus a few years, in the economy. We do so very consistently, and we're a lot better this time than the last time. So this polarization that we're seeing and this anger and this uh, division in the country will come to an end. Uh, I'm quite confident. It's cyclical, and it will gradually fade away. Maybe we've hit the peak. I hope so. I hope so, too. And I think there's some demographics here, uh, Generations, the History of America's Future with by Strauss and Howe is a great book on the subject. Uh, baby boomers are a very polarized generation. They've been polarized since they were young. And the Generation X is generally considered a compromised generation because I, I represent that generation. I can understand why that is. I'm tired of the massive bickering that takes place. Then you have the millennials, which are interested in a lot of the... Um, Fundamental issues to them are things like the the uh, ecology and uh, the climate, and what do we need to do about that? Um, and then you've got the Y generation, which nobody's named yet. Their X generation didn't get named either. We're compromised enough. We're not. We we don't stand for one thing or are polarized enough to say, oh, that's what they are. Why? Uh, exactly. Y generation. And by the way, the Y generation says why a lot, so that makes sense. Yeah, uh, and, and we'll have new generations coming up. But basically what we're saying here is that those generational cycles kind of repeat. And we tend and they tend to be about 25 years long each, uh, although some generations take longer in power than others. The uh, baby boom generation is, is right up there. I mean... The first baby boomer elected to office was uh, Bill Clinton, and he replaced a hero generation, the World War II generation, George H.W. Bush, which he and Reagan were World War II. So since, since the 90s, coming forward, I guess he was elected, what, in 98? So we've got uh, another baby boomer in office now for at least four more years. So we're talking about maybe 27 or 28 years of generational power. And then it tends to switch. It's likely to skip generation X. How's this? Write this down, folks. If the next, if, if the next president is a generation X president, I would be very, very surprised. And my prediction is that it won't happen, that we won't have an, an Xer as a president because we're more, much more oriented on, stopping our parents from bickering with each other over politics and getting compromise done. So expect the Speaker of the House and the majority leader in the Senate to become Generation Xers. We already had a Generation X, uh, Mike, uh, uh, Mike Ryan. Um, man, that name seems wrong to me. Ryan, uh, Speaker of the House Ryan. What was his first name? I don't know, but Mike Ryan was the guy from the book. Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan, Paul. that's it. Yeah, Mike Ryan was the uh, Tom Clancy guy. Um, so Paul Ryan was speaker, 
And his whole role was trying to compromise between people, and that led him to be not very well liked by either side because most people in Congress right now are still baby boomers. Uh, that's, that's something I would expect to see the shift and probably millennials taking a much higher role in government coming forward. What that means is, and, and people kind of paint with a broad brush on any generation, they think that millennials are all going to be Democrats or whatever, unless you're a Democrat, and then you think they're all going to be Republicans. This is the way we treat every new generation. So I, I, I'm saying this because who's in charge in the Senate is something that is a uh, shorter-term issue. The demographic shift on what's important and whether or not we should be really, really angry at each other all the time is, I think you were saying, we tend to get, we get to this, this point of polarity where we just can't agree about anything, and then it switches back and slowly moves back together. I think we're on the cusp of that, and it has nothing to do with individuals. It doesn't have to do with who's president now or who's speaker now or who is majority leader now. It has to do with their ages, and it's really hard to imagine Nancy Pelosi being speaker of the House in 10 years. It could happen, but we're going to have to have some medical advancements between now and then. It's really hard to imagine Joe Biden being uh, coming back and, and having a big impact on politics in 10 years either, uh, where past presidents do have a big impact on politics. It's not likely that he's going to have a big impact on politics in 10 years. Uh, that's, that's my take on the whole thing. And, and it's a, it's a much more broad timeline, bigger picture kind of statement than who's going to win this specific Purdue is, is Purdue going to win type situation. Well, let's talk about a little something different. We need to talk about, I think some of the risks that are out there. Uh, Moody's analytics has got a pretty good chart on that. Uh, one of the things that we that is going on right now is the housing demand has gone up so much and so fast that housing sales are actually falling even as interest rates remain at record lows. That's unusual, but the low interest rates tend to push the price of houses up because it's less expensive to buy a house. Why is it less expensive to buy a house? Because most people buy houses with mortgages and the lower the mortgage rate is, the less the monthly payment needs to be to buy a given house. And that is run housing prices up to record levels. They've jumped tremendously during the year. I, I had in front of me a minute ago what they jumped to. Let's see if I can find it again here. Um, housing prices across the country, it's big. It's rose. I didn't, I didn't wrote down, write down the actual interest rate that, that they rose during the year, but they rose tremendously during the year. And they're still rising. They're rising to the point now where the house price, even at record low interest rates, is preventing people from buying houses. That and the tightness of the bank's lending procedures. Now, what there's there's risk down the road. There's the assumption right now, like there was in 2007, that housing prices will always go up. But if interest rates rise, which the the bond market is predicting will happen in two or three years, as interest rates rise and mortgage rates rise, the values of a lot of the houses will go down. The other thing is high house values tend to make builders build a lot of houses. That hasn't happened yet, largely because of the pandemic. Once the pandemic is over, 
there's some things probably going to change. And one of the things that's likely to change is housing prices will come down. Yeah, and this this is let me throw this in here. Some of the numbers that help you: existing home prices fell in November by two point five percent, or not prices, home sales fell, but not because prices were dry, dropping; they were going up. There's just not enough houses to go around. A better number is the year over year, November to November. And let me tell you this: November and December are traditionally years or tr- traditionally months that not a lot of home purchases take place. People generally not sitting at the Thanksgiving table saying, I'm going to buy a house or I'm going to sell a house. Same thing about Christmas. You you tend to see the numbers drop drastically in November and December. Year over year, November house sales rose 25.8%. That's almost 26% jump. And that was down from October. So what does that mean? It means there's a lot of homes being bought right now. And, and the prices are going up because interest rates are so low. Uh, yeah, go ahead. The problem will be if you want to move in a couple of years or when people decide they want to start selling their houses when the coronavirus is over. Right. Didn't sell their house and want to go someplace else. Or they, a lot of baby boomers are, are retiring and want to move to something smaller. or They want to move into a apartment complex or something, uh, condos. They want to sell their houses. But they're not selling their houses because there's a coronavirus pandemic going on. So once that pandemic is lifted through vaccination, which will probably, according to uh, Dr. Fauci, will be around August, then there will be a lot of houses hit the market for sale. And at that point, interest rates may start up a little bit. And if that happens, if a person wants to sell their house at that point, they may find that the price has gone the other way for a while, which it may do, which is one of the risks that people need to be aware. You need to be aware that the risk is out there. Housing prices don't always go up. I think we saw that in 2007 through nine. Right. But I think a lot of people don't believe that at this point. When, when people buy your house, if they're actually going to live in it, not an investment property, but hey, I want to live in this house. They don't look at the price as their decision maker first. When they're getting ready, they say, what can we afford? What can we afford per month? And your monthly payment has a lot more to do with the interest rate. If the interest rate is really low, you can afford more house. So you look around and you say, hey, just a, you know, not very long ago, same price per month would have bought 300000 that buys 400000 now. So people can ask more for their house. Next year, and then in the coming years, as interest rates start doing what interest rates have done since time immemorial, which basically once they go down far enough, they start back up, that's going to limit what you can get for your house when you sell it. It isn't necessarily that it would push the price down, but it's definitely a resistance against moving it upward. And if we have more issues on the monetary side than I expect in the near future, it could cause the prices to drop. There's a lot of cash sitting in the system right now. It's really hard to see prices dropping in housings for the next couple of years, but it could happen. Uh, And that's what we're warning you about is that prices of houses do not always go up. Prices of Tesla does not always go up. There's a lot of cash sitting there and a lot of people are moving their cash around in a way that they normally wouldn't because we're in a pandemic. It is nice to have 2020 hindsight. Man, is it nice to have 
2020 in the hindsight. Uh, that is uh, a year that uh, I hope none of us ever repeat. Wait, I can give a guarantee on that. No one will ever repeat the year 2020. Let's hope not. Well, I mean, I'm pretty good at giving that kind of guarantee. I mean, it might be wrong. They could revise the entire international calendar system and change the, the years again. We could do it again. But I think that just saying the word 2020 might pause whatever institution would do that. It might, but, but then again, you never read Timequake. Right. So I have some, some, yeah, I haven't read Timequake. That's, I've got to put that on my list. I have some stuff to talk about. I mean, we, the stimulus package was passed. We didn't have a governmental shutdown. We talked about that. If you have a small business and it had a drop in revenue and, and it's a 25% reduction in gross receipts during any one quarter of 2020 from the same quarter in 2019, you can go back to get another paycheck protection program loan using the same kind of guidelines as before. Uh, for full forgiveness, you got to spend 60% of the loan funds on payroll cost. Uh, you've got some other expenses that you're allowed to use it for as well. This is a big deal. There are a lot of businesses out there that are still carrying a backload of debt from being shut down without their consent. They didn't say, hey, would you like to shut down? It was a governmental thing. You must shut down. So this is a big deal. It, and I think if you've got a struggling business that had a drop in revenue, that you can go back for paycheck protection. That means that the, the folks that got the loan because they were afraid that revenue might drop and then didn't see the revenue drop, aren't going to qualify this time. But if you actually did have a drop in your revenue because of this massive natural disaster, then you have the ability to recoup some of that that wasn't your fault. Uh, that's extremely good news. They also changed in the law something that was maybe the most painful to a lot of people in that the loan forgiveness application is being simplified. Uh, the forms and instructions for a one-page forgiveness applica applications under $150,000, um, they've got to include, you've got to include some critical details like the number of employees that you retained and have some auditable stuff on it, but it's a lot easier than what was being proposed earlier in the year about how to get this thing forgiven. So that, those are some really, really good pieces of, of news for businesses that are in deep struggle mode right now. Um, that's, we, we really didn't get a whole lot to, to cover on that, but there's some other enhancements to other small business administration loans um, under the CARES Act and then uh, after the CARES Act, this, this new um, act as well. And what do you have to say to, to bring in the new, the new year? What do I have to say to bring in the new year? The new year is going to be, I'm confident, a lot better than the old year. I'm saying that because I have to step away from the microphone. Being virtual, there is a cat that is trying to dig through my doorway. I have to let him out. Well, John, contact us again with another question. Are these record low interest rates the first year as it happened before? We've had low interest rates before in the history of the United States. We didn't actually track them very carefully, but nothing like we've seen today. 
Uh, I think the I think we can say with some degree of confidence that general interest rates are as low as they've ever been or lower. Uh, we didn't track national interest rates before the 20th century, and actually late in the 20th century, we started tracking them officially. But given that, given all we know about history, I think this is the lowest interest rates have ever been. But interest rates are kind of interesting at this point. Uh, they're lower than they appear to be. And they're being forced down by the Federal Reserve to reinvigorate the economy. There were times when interest rates might have conceivably been lower under some circumstances, uh, because but there was deflation going on at the time. And when let's just say that the dollar is deflating at, at a fairly high rate of speed, and somebody's charging you one percent on a loan, uh, it's one percent plus deflation. So if we have two percent deflation as we had in the 30s and you're being charged 1%, that's a real 3% interest rate. Today, interest rates are negative. Uh, for example, historically, in, inflation has run around 3%, and the Federal Reserve said they're gonna, they want, they have a target of 2%, but they're certainly willing to let it run above 2%. But what we have is interest rates on mortgages, which is something we can see fairly readily, uh, are down below two percent, or we're not below two below three percent. They're down in the two point something, two and a quarter percent. I've had several offers uh, sent to me that somebody says they will loan me money to refinance my mortgage at two and a quarter percent. That's about what inflation will be, according to the Federal Reserve. That's their target into the future is around two and a quarter percent, a little over two percent is what they're looking for. So in essence, if I get a two and a quarter percent loan on my house. I have an, a zero interest rate loan in real terms. Right. If that's, if that's the inflation that we receive. Yeah. The lowest it's ever going to get. Yeah. Um, kind of going back in history to before that, you know, there's a big question that people have, have thrown this out. Have we ever had negative interest rates before? Yes. That's how banks were established. And I know this is weird because there, if you look at the headlines and, First time ever, negative interest rates is what how it started when when negative interest rates were started in Europe. It's not the first time ever. We just didn't call it a negative interest rate before. When banks were first established, it was to protect your currency from home burglary. And you paid a fee to do that. You said, here, hold my money. I want to have it when I come back. Here's some money to hold it for me. It was kind of a vault fee. And most of these vaults were dug into the side of riverbanks, which is why we call them banks. And it was not about a free toaster or how much will you pay me if I give you my money to take care of. It was the other way around. You pay us and we'll protect your money. We have to hire guards. You don't have guards in your house. Now it's become, because banks can make a profit off of the money we deposit with them, it has become... Uh, wait a minute, why aren't they paying me money for the profit they're making? One of the important things to understand is there's a difference between loan interest rates on loans and the interest rates that's paid on deposits. Right. Most of American history, no interest rates was, were paid on deposits, and that's something people forget rather readily. Um, the, the dollar didn't have much inflation except an occasion when it did, and it was dramatic and sudden and then went away. But the point is, as Jake said, you basically paid a bank to hold your money for you. You actually paid fees or sometimes you 
you had fees on the money that you deposited at the bank because they were holding it for you. Yes, they would loan it out at the same time, but that's how banks made money and that's how it functioned. It was not it was not until the post-World War II economy in the United States and actually kind of a while after World War II that interest rates were paid on deposits at banks. And it was because there was uh, there was competition that sprung up and the competition is still there. The competition of the banks is pretty strong. We have a huge non-bank bank economy. Shadow banks, it's called. For instance, money market funds. Uh, what's uh, Personal PayPal. loans, PayPal, yeah. So those are the competitions to the banks right now. And by the way, if you want a threat to the economy, there it is. The uh, you, know, you said you were going to talk about this. We're almost out of time. Aunt, uh, yeah. Joe Ma's aunt got cracked down on by the government. And one of the reasons is- By the Chinese government. By the Chinese government. And the reason that it got cracked down on is his banking authority, his non-bank banking activities were actually getting larger than the regular banks. And the regular banks are controlled by the government. And his non-bank banking activities, his loaning and taking deposits and paying interest on them in China was actually getting larger than the banks were. And that can be a threat. We're seeing that in the United States. PayPal, money market funds. The Federal Reserve has actually taken over some degree of regulation of money market funds because they're, in effect, banks. So we've got a rapidly changing environment, and thank God we have a flexible system in the Federal Reserve that is able to flex with this environmental change. Right. Uh, That's a a huge thing. What's happening also is that if you've got money invested in stocks in China, just be aware that the government has taken a step back from its uh, step-back program. It gave companies a great deal of leeway to form new profitable ventures for a long time. And now it's stepping in and being much more controlling and it's unilateral. It's not across just one. It's not just ant group. It's everywhere. So just be aware China just got to be more dangerous as an investor because the government has stopped taking its lazy fare of it, uh, uh, attitude as if that was a very big attitude it had, but, and moving forward. And we're almost out of time. We got one minute left. Yes. That's to tell you. Well, welcome to 2021, folks. Thanks for listening to the first program of the year of the Personal Wealth Coach. We appreciate your input and your feedback on how we're doing and what we're doing. If you want to ask us to talk about something, please email us. If you want to contact us off the air, uh, you can call our number locally at 254-947-1111. Or 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. And there you can sign up for our newsletter, listen to our recordings of the radio program going back lots of years. You can also email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. And until next week, This has been The Personal Wealth Coach.